let's go ahead and get started, and I will try not to go too long for you guys tonight. I got a little lesson here from what is our fourth lesson in our Ruth study. No screen tonight for my video viewers, so grab a Bible, follow along, or do what you normally do, just watch and, and uh, or most of you listen. So I'll read and I try to read, um, try to read slowly. I want to title this tonight, Handfuls on Purpose. I'm pulling that title from a phrase that appears in the second chapter of Ruth, where Ruth goes into the field of Boaz and Boaz instructs his men on how to treat this Moabitess girl. Um, and one of the phrases that is used, I think the old King James says, handfuls of purpose. Boaz tells his men, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the lesson, but I want to say it up front because of the title. Boaz tells his men, when this young lady comes behind you in the fields gleaning, drop some handfuls on purpose. Miss the bag. In other words, as you're gathering the sheaves and they would tie them up and stack them or they would tie them up and bag them, he goes, leave some of them on the ground on purpose so that when this woman comes through, she can grab them up and collect them. And it doesn't take a real, you don't have to be real imaginative to find the grace of God in that phrase. That, that just as Boaz would leave handfuls on purpose for Ruth, our father leaves handfuls on purpose for us. That's what I'm leading up to tonight. That's where we'll go to, to try and finish, is this idea that um, Boaz, as the, for, for lack of a better way of saying it, Boaz is our Christ figure in this story. We'll get into that over the coming weeks. But just as our Christ figure leaves handfuls of purpose on us, that's what we call favor, grace, the mercy of God. So Boaz does for Ruth. I want to begin in Ruth chapter 2. And I want to read just a couple of verses to start. And we're going to jump back into Torah tonight because I want to do some qualifying on, on this opening phrase from the, third, from the second chapter. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. That phrase great wealth doesn't translate real well from the Hebrew to the English. It sounds like the guy had a lot of money. Um, he probably did, but that's not the point of the word in the Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew is of great reputation. Um, he's, he's, he's well off, so he probably has a lot of money, but it's bigger than having money because you can have a lot of money and not have a great reputation. So it's, there's a, the word is a little fuller in the Hebrew than money. So Boaz is a man who has a, he's of high character. He's, high, he's a high quality man. He's not just a wealthy man. And that's important to the story because he's going to live up to the high quality nature. Well, of course, he's going to live up to the great wealth, but you can also have great wealth and not be greatly generous. And so Boaz being a great man, that word helps to preface the story, if you're reading it in Hebrew, that this guy's a special guy, not just this guy's a rich guy, because the Bible's full of bad rich men, okay? In fact, the Bible's full of, it's got probably more bad rich men than good rich men, especially by the time Christ starts to teach. So Boaz kind of bucks that trend. He's a different kind of guy. His name is Boaz, so Ruth the Moabitess, and notice the phrase, it calls her the Moabitess. It doesn't have to, but it does. It did it at the end of chapter 1 as well because the writer is reminding you who this girl is. Ruth isn't from here. Ruth isn't like you. Ruth doesn't look like you. Ruth doesn't worship like you. 
in our vernacular, she's not, she doesn't share our values. She doesn't have our uh, taste, whatever. Ruth the Moabite, this is a way of titling her. She says to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. The word glean does not simply mean harvest. This is an easy one to mess up. I've done this for a long time. I read this and think that what she's asking to do is go harvest. You have to own a field to harvest a field in the ancient world. You don't go harvest someone else's field unless you're being hired to harvest. You certainly don't go harvest because you want to. The word glean is more than harvest. The word glean is a, a word that would have been used only in relation to the poor because the word glean was to go pick up what was left. So when Ruth says, let me go glean, she's leaning into the charity. I'm going to say charity and I'll explain in a second. She's leaning into the charity code in a way of the Torah. Let me, let me show you what I mean. In Leviticus 19, and this is of course the Torah laying out the code for how the uh, how ownership takes place in, in Israel, like property rights and what you're to do with your fields. Leviticus 19, uh, verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Gleanings are the stuff left over. So you harvest your crop and where you miss some of the crop or you drop some of the crop to pick it up is not to harvest it. To harvest it's to cut it. To pick up the extra is to glean. It's to glean the waste, the excess. So God gives Israel a command, do not reap the corners of your field and don't gather the gleaning. So don't turn around when you get to the end of the row and go back through and pick up what you missed. And because that is the gleaning and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So it's very pointed. Don't go pick up what's left. Don't go clean out the vineyard. Whatever you miss on the first pass is called the gleaning and the gleaning belongs to poor and stranger. So the guy that doesn't own a field has access. The stranger who doesn't know anyone has access. I used the word charity and I hesitated a minute ago because in our culture, charity is people get stuff for nothing. Um, that's not the Torah code. God doesn't put it out there for nothing. It's just that you have to go do the gleaning yourself. So you don't, you don't clean the entire field off. You leave it for the poor and the stranger, but you don't, you don't just stack it up and put it on a table with a sign that says free stuff. <laughs> so it's not a giveaway. It's an allowance if the poor and the stranger is willing to go pick it up. And this way, the worker could keep their pride. Like they could keep their integrity. I did go work for this. No, I didn't plant it. I didn't water it. I didn't even harvest it. But I at least went out there and I picked it up. I had to go pick it up off the ground. It was considered sort of the bare minimum that you had to do. And there wasn't, it wasn't as if you could eat the whole winter on this gleaning. But it might keep you from starving to death this week. It might save your life for a moment. And that was part of that Levitical code. Here's another one from Leviticus 23, verse 22. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting to me that within a four-chapter span, God repeats the exact same injunction. So it's not like they didn't know it in 19, but he repeats it in 23. It's like God goes back over to go, hey, let me remind you of that thing I told you four chapters ago. Don't glean all of this. It doesn't all belong to you. So I don't want to get in the weeds here, but it is worth saying that the legal code of Israel is about more than teaching people how to eat and how to have sex. Because I swear when people talk about the Old Testament, they want to go pull a verse to try to talk morality. They really only know how to, they think it's all dietary code, sexual code. And it's incredible to me that if we want to go pick a scripture in the Old Testament to really double down on, why don't we double down on, don't use everything you have. There are poor and strangers in the world. You know, like save some for someone else. But <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I laugh, but it's not funny. I mean, it's, it's true that, that it's more offensive to land on the, what are we doing for the poor and the stranger scripture than it is um, how you should live your life or what you should do. Um, Israel's ultimate judgments throughout the Old Testament are never on individual morality. Like God doesn't come down and judge national Israel because people are living immorally. He comes down and judges national Israel because they're not taking care of the poor and the stranger. So it, it, doesn't mean God doesn't care about how we live our lives. It's the opposite. Of course he cares about how we live our life. He just wants us to care for our neighbor. And then Jesus comes along, of course, living that out in full color. Now, I bring all of this up because this is what Ruth does. She's not Jewish. She comes into the land of Judah, out of the land of Moab. She has no right to be there. Probably no one is going to like her and she knows it. But she leans into this Torah regulation that you can pick up the gleanings. And by leaning into that, she provides us with a full color example of what good can come out of us caring for our neighbor. And I think it's in a world where um, there is this Ezra-Nehemiah backdrop of trying to keep the Moabites out of Judah. And here's the story of Ruth and how she is received. So look at verse 3 from Ruth chapter 2. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Um, some people kind of look at this as the Bible's example of coincidence. Um, there is no word for coincidence in the Hebrew, um, and I think it's because their, their religious culture didn't believe in coincidence. I actually do. I mean, I think stuff happens just because it happens. Um, but I don't think that just because it appears coincidental, it is. Um, I think, I think two things can be true at the same time, that some stuff's coincidental, but also God can be in the coincidental. And so I don't want to act like everything coincidental was God's hand, but I don't ever want to miss God's hand in what I call happenstance. She happens upon the, upon the field of Boaz. In the Hebrew, it is a little richer in those first couple verses because the Hebrew vernacular makes it sound like she went looking for this guy named Boaz. She heard that he was a relative. So it's not quite as coincidental as it looks, 
But I want to say this as well. Um, what appears to be coincidental is not always coincidental because if we're trusting God for our provision, all we're really doing is positioning ourselves for God's favor. And then what looks like it might be coincidence is actually us being in the place we're supposed to be at the time we're supposed to be there because we've been following the voice of the Holy Spirit. Ruth takes advantage of the fact that Israel has a code for how to treat the poor. She leans into that code. And by leaning into that code, she lands right where she's supposed to be for Boaz to find her. Notice, Boaz finds her. She doesn't find Boaz. And so it's really popular to tell young women to go find their Boaz in the world. But the truth is, is that Ruth is simply leaning into being the stranger and the poor, and Boaz comes to find her. The hero in the story is Boaz because he does what heroes are supposed to do. He sacrifices of himself to purchase that or to save that which can't save itself. So Boaz does what we hope the best among us will do. Um, Ruth is in position to receive that from God. I've received countless moments in my life where I know it was a favor of God. I didn't do anything for it. I'm not smart enough to do it. I didn't plan it out, but I can look back at the dominoes that fell on the way to that moment, and I realized that I made decisions over here that put me in the place, that put me with this fifth domino, that if I hadn't made that decision, and you can say, well, if you hadn't made that decision, God would have made this domino fall. Maybe so, but this is the one that fell. This is the one that I needed, and I had to be in that position. And so this is what I mean by not, believe, not truly believing in coincidence. You walk into the place and the will for which God has you, you don't have to understand what comes next. You don't have to understand what comes around the corner. You simply place yourself in the position to allow God to move. Um, I, don't, I certainly don't have this mastered. And I, I, I have, like Hebrews 10 says, you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. I really have need of patience that after I've done the will of God, I might receive the promise because I, I want to be in the know. Like I want to know what God's going to do right now. And I don't. And I don't think that that means God's hiding it from me. I think that it means that God is watching for obedience over a long period of time. And so the Father is, is beckoning you to come on and you're taking these steps. And every day is a step of obedience. And every day is a step of humility. And as you step forward, God's not under an obligation to tell you everything that's coming down the road, but by following the daily voice of God, you position yourself to step into that place of Boaz-like favor. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to get too. Uh, you know, I, I I certainly don't want to make it take out the role of the Holy Spirit in, in leading you over long courses of time. But I think sometimes we can get a little lazy. And I say we. I, I guess I mean me. We can get a little lazy in in that approach of of one, of needing to go back every day to hear that voice of God. We can say, well, I'm just, I'm just set here. God's gonna do it. Um, and I've, I've found that there's been times in my life that what, what I was calling rest was just a little bit of, eh, 
you know, I, mean, I don't know. I don't have anything else to do. Um, I'm, this is where I am. God wants to do it. He'll do it. But there's, I think the Christian walk is more than that sort of shrug your shoulders apathy. Mm. You know, uh, you know God, will, God will show up or he won't. <laughs> it's true. God's going to do what God's going to do. But he's also calling me every day. He's calling you every day. He's beckoning us. Ruth doesn't get this if she don't go to the field, is my point. You got to go to the field. And so go into the field for us a little bit is spending that time with him. And I don't believe you, that, that you need God's, you know, uh, to do something new every day. But we do need to hear his voice because it is sort of like manna. It is like that fresh bread where God leads us that one baby step at a time. And if we're patient, we end up turning that corner being right where we need to be. So for all intents and purposes, Ruth turns the corner, she's right where she needs to be. And we're only in chapter two, and here she is. She's in the right field at the right place at the right time with a guy named Boaz. And Boaz is the wealthiest man in Judah. He is a close kinsman, not the closest, but a close kinsman to Ruth. He's really the answer to all of the things that she needs and she doesn't know it. And it's another example of how often we step into the thing that God's going to do, but we don't realize how big it is in the moment we step into it. She meets Boaz, her, all of the future. Jesus is in this. Like Jesus is going to be born from this union. You can't see that far down the road. You, you don't know those little encounters, but we miss them when we don't take the initiative and take the step and and go where God would have us to go. I say this to my grace community, to my grace friends. Um, do not put off taking a step because you're afraid that it's not rest. Do not put off taking a step because you think taking steps is works. You're not taking a step to get God to love you. You're not taking a step to get God to forgive you. You're taking a step because God is out there saying, I want to meet you. And it's the equivalent of him standing on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm, looking into a boat and saying to Peter, yeah, come on. You don't have to walk on the water. I'll come to you. I mean, ultimately, I'll come and get on the boat with you. Wouldn't it be cool if you could walk on this water with me? Now that's a story. And of course, there's risks in swinging your legs outside of a perfectly dry boat and stepping onto a raging sea. The risks are obvious. You don't need anybody to explain to you how stupid it is to do it. You don't need anybody to explain to you that you're going to drown or that you're going to die, but you also don't need anybody else to explain to you that there's a Jesus beckoning you forward. But my point is you got to swing your leg out and you got to take that step. And sometimes you got to go into that field where you don't want to be and do what you don't want to do. And life is not a series of extremely comfortable choices now that you're a child of God and everything is going to be super easy and very smooth and I'll never be challenged. And if it's God, I'll never be bothered. No, there's going to be moments where you step into the field, not knowing what the end of the day holds, but you step into it because you know, God has provided. Ruth has a provision. They leave the gleanings. Maybe, maybe Naomi called her off to the side and said, listen, the land we're going, you're not going to be accepted, but here's the good news. They leave the gleanings for people like you. There's an opportunity here if you're willing to take it. And so she steps forward and is willing to take it and is willing to receive it. I've not given enough thought to how humbling this has to be for Ruth or how humbling it has to be for any stranger or any poor to go in and glean. But it's stepping into that humility that affords you the opportunity. 
And almost anything halfway great I've ever done caused me to have to break half my pride to do it, to, to give up on something that I thought identified me or a title or a place or a comfort level to say, I got to give that up to see what's around this corner. I'm, just, I'm naturally curious anyway. I know there's something over there. I'm not saying it's better than what I have, but I hear the voice calling me. And so I encourage you to take that step and challenge you to take that step and walk that out. Let's walk through some of this text, though, beginning in verse 4. Um, and then we'll work our way, kind of work our way through this exegetically. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, Boaz shows up now. And when Boaz shows up, this is him talking to his workers. The Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? There's a, there's a statement we wouldn't make today. We would say, who is this? Not whose is this? So that, this is another time, place, and setting. This is a culture in which if Ruth's out here, she belongs to somebody. Which this is also telling because she doesn't belong to anybody. And that's what he's going to learn. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. And Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Nine's interesting because it shows you the, the culture of the day too. Boaz had to actually tell his young men to leave her alone. Because in this world, even in, I know we, we want to think that in Israel, nothing like that would happen. Bethlehem, Judah, but <laughs> yeah, welcome to the real world. But Boaz had to tell the young men, leave her alone. Don't touch her. No cat calls, no talking to her. Let this girl work. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Notice the author of the book of Ruth is repeating this, giving you this little insight that here's a foreigner. Boaz answered and said to her, It has, not, it has been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father, your mother, in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. I remember last week I told you that this, was it the last week or the week before, that this is the female version of the male story of Abraham. Abraham leaves his father and his mother in his land, goes to a land he doesn't know. Boaz is declaring that Ruth is doing the same thing. In effect, Ruth is becoming sort of the mother figure of, of, what, of Israel in the same way that Abraham does. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. If you're a note taker, you're at home, you got your hard copy, I highly recommend you grab an ink pen and out to the side of verse 12. Just write something like, Boaz prays this over Ruth. And I, when we get into chapter 3, I'm going to remind you that you wrote that in the margin of your Bible. Because in chapter 3, Ruth is going to challenge Boaz to do exactly what he's praying. And I don't want to dwell on this for too long because I'm going to say this later, but I'll say it now as a way of previewing it. Don't pray things you're not willing to do because you're going to be the one the Lord comes back to oftentimes in prayers. So Lord, help this person. The Lord goes, okay, let's help them. No, Lord, I said help them. 
You help them. The Lord goes, doesn't work that way. <laughs> if you're praying it, you've invested. Well, I'm going to come back to, to you. And so this is going to come back to Boaz and Ruth's going to make sure that it does. And she says in verse 13, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you've comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now, Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. So he actually gave her extra. This is a little bit of the feeding of the 5,000. She, she receives the miraculous food, but she gets a basket of fragments left over. And when she rose up to glean, and this is her reaping, this is her going to pick up the stuff off the ground. Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her or rebuke her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Or as the old King James says, leave handfuls of purpose for her. And as some translations say, and that's what I titled, handfuls on purpose for her. Leave them on purpose for her that she may glean and do not rebuke her. I, I, I will stop there just to, just to concentrate for a second on that idea of handfuls on purpose. This has been a a thing that has been, I look back on 30, what is this now? This is 30 years of ministry. I look back on 30 years of ministry at all the things I've preached over the years. And I've forgotten more of them than I remember, probably, honestly. And probably a lot of them needed forgotten, especially early. Um, but I do remember being impacted by this verse really early on. Like in my early preaching days, teenage Paul. I remember preaching handfuls on purpose. And I remember preaching it. It was probably, looking back now, it was probably one of the first real grace sermons I preached in my life that I really believed, but I didn't really have a theology of grace. You know, like I was pretty legalistic. I was pretty performance-driven. I was pretty judgmental. But I remember preaching handfuls on purpose. I remember very vividly having just a real vision of, of missing the bag. I remember preaching it that way. Like Boaz told him intentionally miss the bag and drop some of this on the ground so that Ruth can come along and pick it up. Like it was, Oh boy, look at all this, you know, like kind of this insane amount of grain that should be in the bag, but it's not in the bag. You guys sure you're better glean, you're better reapers than this. But for today, I want all of you to be bad at what you do. Like, I want all of you to be poor reapers and just miss the bag. Just don't look. You know, you, you're used to doing it, but just reach outside of it and drop it. And Ruth's coming along thinking, something's got to be wrong. There's no way there's, it's this good. And I just remember having that very clear thought early on. I've not really thought about that for years at how much that was one of the early moments that the Lord was preaching grace in me that there is, your God is so good that he is going to drop handfuls on purpose, none of which you deserve, none of which you can work for, none of which you will earn, and all you got to do is reach down and pick them up. And now I live that every day. Like there's no way that I can earn any of this that God is doing. And, and, I, and I say all of that so that maybe you will realize the handfuls on purpose God's dropped for you. 
the, the, the times when he's been unnaturally good, just you, it shouldn't have happened this way for you, but it did. And it's easy for you to just think you're smart or you're lucky. It's better for you to realize he's dropped handfuls on purpose. Like he just put that down there. I didn't do anything for it. It's God. And he's a good, good God. Psalm 37 says this. I wanted kind of a support verse that goes with this story that comes from another passage. I chose this one. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I like the thought that if I delight myself in him, he looks into my heart, finds what it is I really want and gives it to me. Now, of course, at my own, it's not as if God gives you harm. He's not going to give you evil. But if I delight myself in the Lord, spend time with him, he gives me the desires of my heart. And I, I have to remind myself of that once in a while. And I try to remind God of it, not that he needs to know. What I found is every time I'm reminding God, I'm really just reminding me. Like, Lord, you said that you'll give me the desires of my heart. And it's reminding me that that's the kind of God that I serve. The last two verses I'll read tonight are Ruth 2, 17, 18. It's the two right past the handfuls on purpose. She gleaned in the field until the evening. She beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought it out. She gave her what she had kept back after she'd been satisfied. The interesting thing is an ephah of barley lasts the average, would last two people in that world over a week. So Boaz gave her enough food last week, and she can go back the next day and work. And so she's already building surplus one day in to this experience with Boaz. Um, let's close with two thoughts. One, how would this have mattered in the Ezra and Nehemiah world? Ezra and Nehemiah are enacting a set of theological legislation that pushed the Moabite out of Israel at the expense of marriages and families and parents. And they're doing it in the name of God. The Ruth story at this point is to say, God is good to whoever he wants to be good to. And in your own history, he's been uber good to Moabitess named Ruth. And if you think that goes down easy, I disagree. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, recover sight to the blind, set at liberty them that are bruised. He says, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, that's jubilee. And then he says, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he closes it and he lays it down and he goes back to his seat. And the crowd starts to rumble in the synagogue. And they say, wow, whose kid is this? This is Joseph the carpenter's son. This is incredible. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And Jesus hears them rumbling and says, don't you, have you guys ever wondered why a long time ago that God healed Elijah, the widow, why God multiplied the oil for the widow's son. Wasn't there enough widows in all of Israel that God would supply a widow in Zipporah? 
or Zarephath rather? Why would God supply the widow at Zarephath with oil? Weren't there enough widows in Israel? And then Jesus goes, also, were there not enough lepers in Israel that in the days of Elisha, God would heal Naaman the Syrian of leprosy? And the Bible says that everyone in the room got mad at Jesus and took up stones to kill him. I mean, 30 seconds ago, they were amazed at Jesus. And now they're ready to kill Jesus. And all, what did he do? He just brought up two stories, Elijah and Elisha. Remember when God blessed the widow's oil in Elijah's life? She wasn't a Jew. Why'd God do that when there was a bunch of Jewish widows hungry? Remember the Syrian named Naaman that got healed of leprosy in the time of Elisha? Why did God heal Naaman? Weren't there enough lepers in Israel that God would bless them instead of Naaman? What's Jesus doing? He's showing the audience of his day that God's jubilee doesn't stop at the borders of Israel. God's jubilee crosses over and grabs the widow at Zarephath and grabs Naaman the Syrian. I don't think this went over real well for those of Nehemiah because if Ruth the Moabite is being blessed, it's not going to go over any better than Jesus telling his two stories. Here's the other thing to land on. What does this mean for us? It means we have a responsibility to do what we can do. We can't change the world. We can't save everybody. But if a Ruth walks into our field, we take care of her the best that we can. Um, it also means that that's us being Boaz. It also means that sometimes we're Ruth. Break your pride. Pick up what's there. Receive the provision from God. Don't expect it because you're good. Expect it because he's good. Let me say that again. Don't expect because you're good. Expect because he's good. And if you can accept because he's good, then that's the favor of the Lord. This story is going to go take a lot of lefts and rights, a lot of turns. This is a nice little grace nugget tonight. Just a nice little moment of God leaves handfuls on purpose for me and I don't deserve them. And thank God for that. Right? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this word. Thank you for the fact that I know that more times than I even know to count, you have dropped handfuls on purpose for me. Just crazy favor. And I didn't deserve it. And I know that you've done that for a lot of people watching, a lot of people listening, and, and for people here. That, that they, they just, they've watched you do stuff, and it just didn't make sense. And I want to learn to be thankful, and I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for what you've done. And I want to say thankful, thank you in advance to the field I'm going to step into tomorrow, and the field I'm going to step into next week, and the week after that. And I know you got handfuls on purpose for me. And not because I'm good, but because you're good. So thank you. And Father... Also, teach me to watch for the Ruth that wanders into my life. The widow, the stranger, the poor, the hurting, that just needs a handful. They don't need the whole barn full. They need a handful. Father, teach me to watch out for that and teach me to miss the bag once in a while. What would it look like if I learned how to do that? And I, I want to do that in accordance with your will. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.